0: Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and we'd like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta and Gardigal land. And we're asking you to influence your local politicians with the message that we really need to change our energy policies and move to renewable energy sources to mitigate the effects of climate change, and each month we love bringing you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, our friend, molecular pharmacologist, toxicologist, and amateur astronomer, Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave, brings you his monthly sky guide with all the essential observational highlights for telescopers, astrophotographers, and naked eye observers. Each month, Ian also includes Ian's Tangent, where he takes us on a short journey of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we bring you an exclusive and in-depth interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, particle physicist, radio telescope engineer, data scientist or space scientist. But right now, we're going to zoom up to Sydney to speak with Dr. Yessa van der Sand. Hello Yessa. Hello, Brendan. So today I'm really pleased to be speaking with Dr. Yessa van der Sand. Yessa is on an Astro 3D Research Fellowship at the Sydney Institute for Astronomy at the School of Physics at the University of Sydney. Astro 3D It's the Australian Research Council's centre of excellence for all sky astrophysics in three dimensions. But (laughs) that's such a mouthful, we'll just call it like everyone else does, Astro 3D. So Yasser is an observational astronomer. He's researching galaxies at low and high redshift. His research focuses on how massive galaxies form, evolve and die. And he has also co led a team which has published some amazing discoveries about our very own Milky Way galaxy, which was destined to rewrite the astronomy textbooks, in my view. And he has a long history with the famous SAMI survey. So, thanks for speaking with us today, yes, sir?
1: Yeah, Brendan, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Excellent. Okay, so. Before we look at your deep galaxy research and your current work at the University of Sydney, can you tell us where you grew up, please, and where your curiosity and passion for science and astronomy came from?
1: Yeah, thanks. So I grew up in the Netherlands in a little town called Oldermarkt, which is probably as remote in the Netherlands as you can get, although that means very little here in Australia, <laughs> but it's probably one of the few places where you can still see the Milky Way. So there's a lot of light pollution in, in the Netherlands and finding a good place to look at the night sky is hard, but I was lucky that you know five minutes from my house, I could go outside and actually see the Milky Way, the night sky, constellations, all of these things. And I think that was really the first time where my interest for astronomy uh, started. Excellent. OK, so
0: perhaps you could tell us a little about those school days in that tiny old market town in the north of the Netherlands and your earliest ambitions and how
1: those ambitions have evolved and been shaped. Yeah, so growing up in a town with 3,000 people was was challenging in a way that I didn't have a lot of access to observatories or large libraries. And so my high school was about 12 kilometers away. So I had to cycle into school every day. But there was one teacher in particular, it was a science teacher, who did a special course on astronomy that really sparked my interest. And I remember thinking that while physics was always interesting, I found it a little dry, in particular, because it was always focused on these very narrow topics. And when I was introduced to astronomy, where you really combine all of the different physics disciplines, that's the thing that really got my interest. And so I think that was when I was probably 16, so quite late as compared to some of my colleagues. But that really was the time where I felt, okay, I want to study astronomy and started working a little bit harder to reach those goals.
0: Fantastic. Yes. So after that school career, which was obviously successful, In your own words, you moved down to the big city and completed three degrees at Leiden University near The Hague. And you topped off your studies when you were awarded your PhD, building on your bachelor's and your master's degrees. Now, could you tell us about that transition from school to your first bachelor's degree in astronomy and astrophysics? And we know that mentors and advisors can play pivotal roles for Early career astronomers, would you like to mention some of those people who helped your journey from school through to your university
1: degrees? So I remember the first time I got to the Leiden and I spoke to, at that time, the, I think it was the educational advisor for the astronomy first year. And they looked at my marks and they said, okay, I know high school must have been relatively easy. But remember, as soon as you go to university, things are going to become really hard really soon. They also gave the warning, they said, look, everyone always thinks that they can manage in the same way they did everything in high school. So studying very little and just winging it at every exam. (laughs) This is not how it's going to be. And I sort of heeded that advice. But at the same time, I was skeptical until I remember seeing the grades from my first midterm exam, which were lower than any market ever received. So that was the point where I realized, okay, university is a little bit of a different cookie. It means I have to work really hard if I want to be successful as an astronomer. And in particular, the physics and the much higher level of maths required were a bit of a struggle for me. And so those first three years were... Like full days of studying, weekends probably as well, and exam period was just non-stop studying for me. But it was always the ambition of learning more about astronomy, learning more about combining all of the maths and physics that got me through this. And it was one person in particular, which was ended up being my PhD supervisor as well, which was uh, Professor Marianne Franks, who. I remember really well in his one of his first lectures on galaxies just sparked something inside of me that has never gone away. And it's that fascination for how galaxies work, how you can really study these from first gravitational principles. So using Newton's laws, you can learn so much about how a galaxy works. And it was that Professor Franks who explained that so well. And it was actually funny that I came back once during my postdoc and I sat in on a lecture of his, and even though the lecture was probably 15 years after I'd seen mine, I still got that same excitement, that, that little inner me that got interested in doing Galaxy Dynamics said, "we" again, and I was just in love all over again. So it really was a few people during my career that helped me get through the heavy math, physics to really continue into the thing that I loved the most, which was astronomy.
0: Fantastic. And I have a feeling you're inspiring others in turn. Yes, sir. Now, could we have a brief look at your PhD and how that might have provided a launch pad into your current research? (laughs) I loved your title. Your thesis is titled Dawn of the Red and Dead stellar kinematics of massive quiescent galaxies out to Z equals two. Now, that first bit would be a great title for a horror movie, I reckon. But you were studying galaxies up to 15 billion light years away. Now, could you give us a brief outline of your methodology, your data sources, and the favorite instruments you've got that gathered those data? And what you discovered in those sleepy, giant galaxies? Please, yes, sir.
1: Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned horror movies. During my PhD, I was quite into Quentin Tarantino's movies. And he actually has a kind of weird zombie horror movie called Dawn of the Dead. And so I was definitely inspired by that movie <laughs> to come up. But the other reason for it is I used an instrument called X-Shooter, which, again, you know, combined with the movies of Quentin Tarantino was just the perfect match. Now, the really cool thing about when I started my PhD was that there was a new instrument that was just commissioned. So it just came online, been developed for the last 10 years. But in early 2010, this instrument called X-Shooter made it onto the telescope right when I started my PhD. And the beauty of this was that it opened up a completely new discovery space for doing spectroscopy of galaxies in the early universe. And the reason why this was so perfectly timed is because in the early to in early 2000s, so probably starting in 2004, there was a discovery of extremely massive galaxies in the early universe that had already gone completely quiescent. And so normally when we talk about quiescent galaxies, we mean galaxies that are no longer forming stars. Um, They have a red appearance because old stars are redder than young stars. Um, But we also didn't see any sign that these galaxies would ever come alive again. So this is why we call them red and dead galaxies. The surprising thing was that we expected these galaxies to become red and dead probably 10 billion years after the Big Bang. But we found these... 2 billion years after Big Bang. So there was a completely different view of how galaxies formed, in particular, how those most massive galaxies formed. And so we expected those to form last, being a very slow process. um, But now these galaxies were discovered very early on in the universe. Cool. The second surprising thing was that these galaxies, if you compare them with similar mass galaxies in the present day universe, so 10 billion years apart, the galaxies in the early universe appear to be a factor of three to four more compact, meaning they're too small for their mass. So this is why we often call these things compact massive quiescent galaxies, and that's quite a mouthful. But what it means is that you take all of the mass of that galaxy and you cram into a much smaller area. And what that does is actually increase the random motions of all of these stars in these galaxies, and that is a measurable effect. And in order to make that measurement, you need spectroscopy. And so this has been done before in the present-day universe and maybe out to what we normally call redshift of one, where you're looking back about 7 billion years, but in order to confirm that these extremely massive galaxies really existed at that time, you needed spectroscopic confirmation. And so Mm -hmm. this is where my PhD came in. So I was tasked with observing these galaxies where the light had traveled to us about 12 billion years ago, but these things were so unbelievably faint that you needed an eight meter class telescope with the absolute best instrument that operated in the near-infrared. And so this was X-Shooter. X shooter was coming online, Um, I got to go to the VLT at the beginning of my PhD, which was unbelievable, and it was an experience of a lifetime. But it was also amazing to use this new instrument for the first time to look at these extremely massive galaxies. And so what we found was that while some people claimed that everything was incorrect because of measurement errors, These galaxies weren't as massive as people thought, these galaxies weren't as small as people thought, these galaxies weren't as dispersion dominated, uh, meaning having high random motions as people thought. All of those were indeed confirmed by the spectroscopy that I did during my PhD. Now this was only on five galaxies in the end, so a really small sample size, but enough to really confirm these claims that these massive galaxies Exist in a very early universe, so that was kind of a really cool result coming out of my PhD. Um, it made me love the boring big elliptical galaxies people call them even more.
0: <laughs> that's ah, oh, that's just beautiful. Okay, now you mentioned the VLT, the Very Large Telescope, with its four eight meter mirrors out there at Paranal in Chile. Oh saw in your CV that you also visited the Isaac Newton Telescope in the Canaries. And since then, you've travelled all over the world. You've worked at many of the great research institutions and used a lot of amazing instruments like the VLT and the GMT and the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, here's my questions. Are you using JWST, the James Webb What's your favourite instrument at the moment? And are astronomers allowed to have favourites? And what's on your bucket list to go and visit? For me, I want to visit the Murchison Widefield Array and the Vera Rubin Telescope. That's my wish list. Tell us about some instruments that you just love. Yes, sir.
1: Well, are we allowed to have favourites? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean. I know you can't pick between different telescopes and different instruments, but I think visiting various places, you always have this magical experience that you will never forget. And in that sense, it is very hard to pick one above another one. Um, One of the amazing things of astronomy is that in order to do these observations with these big telescopes, they have to be in extremely remote areas on high mountaintops on the top of a volcano, in the middle of a desert that is the driest on Earth, where they're doing experiments with Mars robots. So everyone is absolutely stunning. It's funny you mention the Isaac Newton Telescope in the Canaries, because this was the first professional observatory that I visited. And this was actually during my second year of my undergraduate studies, where as a student, we were allowed to write a proposal, do a little small research project to really understand what it's like to be a professional astronomer and doing research from the proposal stage all the way up to data reduction and writing a scientific paper. I mean, if I have a love for one telescope in particular, the Isaac Newton Telescope would be my first love, um, but there have been many, many others afterwards. Now, one in particular I like as well, and it's... It's a little bit of a Stockholm Syndrome telescope for me, is the Anglo-Australian Observatory in Coonabarabran in yep. Australia. So this is an instrument we've used for the Sami Galaxy Survey, but I've probably spent over 70 or 80 nights at that telescope. So it is one of these places where I've been so many times where you're surrounded by wildlife in the middle of the Australian bush that is just amazing and every time i come there i i feel my love for observing and the night sky just coming back in terms of favorite instruments this is definitely more driven towards what science i like to do with it and where i started my phd with doing single spectra of single galaxies in the early universe i've now moved on to using we call integral field spectroscopy, which is a technique where, if you imagine an image of a galaxy, for every pixel that we see within that image, we now get a full spectrum. And so, right. this is often called 3D spectroscopy because we're getting spectra for every position within this galaxy. Yep. And I'd say that the new instrument on the Very Large Telescope is by far the best and most amazing instrument to work with. Um, because you get 90,000 spectra in one single observation. So this is really mind blowing. It is, it is absurd how much data you're getting per galaxy from these observations. So NEWS at the moment is my, my favourite astronomical instrument. It's my workhorse that I'm using to study all types of galaxies. And it is amazing and a little bit scary to work with at the same time. Now, bucket lists. I, I've i always had a strong desire to visit Antarctica. And even though there's only a few telescopes there, so there is one on Dome A that's actually being run by Australian astronomers. There's also the South Pole Telescope. I'd say the Antarctic observatories are on my bucket list to, to visit.
0: Fantastic. Ah, I did a run up the east coast of Australia a couple of years ago, and I visited all the telescopes on that run, and I ended up at Narrabri. But before that, I called in at Coonabarabran and went up to the AAT. And that big yellow monster, it, it's a beautiful instrument. It, it is, as you say, it is an inspiring telescope. Now, just before We move over to your University of Sydney gig and your research there. Can we mention the SAMI survey where you've done a heap of work? And way back in 2016, we interviewed a colleague that you collaborated with, Dr. Caro Foster, and that was just after the early release data come down and I saw that you worked on DR1 and now we're up to data release 3. Can you remind our listeners about the awesomeness
1: of the SAMI survey and
0: the great discoveries that have come out of SAMI, yes sir?
1: Yeah, most certainly. So SAMI is a survey of about 3,000 galaxies using that technique that I just described. So it's called integral field spectroscopy. But instead of observing one galaxy at the time, which was really the standard for a long time with other instruments, one famous one called Sauron, another one was the Khalifa survey. What they had done was observe one galaxy at the time because of how the instrument was designed. And so what people in Sydney did is they said, Well, what if we use fiber technology, so glass fibers, but instead of putting all of these fibers together into one large square, we split them up into different bundles. And these bundles could then be positioned randomly on the sky or pointed on galaxies themselves, allowing you to observe 12 galaxies simultaneously instead of just one. And what that means is that instead of a survey where you can observe, say, a maximum of 300 or 600 galaxies, this allowed us to go to much larger samples. So we made it up to 3,068 unique galaxies in the end. We observed a few galaxies as for calibration purposes as well. But 3,000 galaxies allowed us to look at galaxies in a completely different way. By that I mean is that if you want to understand how galaxies evolve, you want to have the ability to split up your sample into different parameters. And so fundamental parameters for galaxy, the most important one is its mass. The second one is probably what it looks like in terms of its morphology or star formation rate. So we know about these red and dead galaxies that often look elliptical. There is lenticular galaxies that are rotating disks but they've stopped forming stars a long time ago. And then there is your garden variety of spiral galaxies and a few low mass dwarfs that we also observe. But what it does when you have a sample of 3000 is that you can split your sample and make comparisons, binning things up into mass bins, in star formation rate bins, in other properties such as size. And then you can investigate how these properties change, say, as in, in what environment they live in. So yeah. some galaxies live in a big city, meaning like in a big cluster of galaxies, others live more in isolation. And we believe that this has a strong impact on how a galaxy evolves. If it lives in a big city, it will stop forming stars very early on, because all of its gas is being removed from the galaxy. And that's the fuel for building new stars. where if you live in isolation, you have access to that fuel for as long as you can make new stars out of it before you run out of that little fuel. So what we did with SAMI is really try to answer a question, how does environment impact the evolution of galaxies? And for that, you really need at least two, 3,000 galaxies. And so this is the first time that we did this. So besides the, the normal trend that we see where you find that Red and dead galaxies tend to live in more cluster areas and star-forming galaxies live in isolation. With SAMI, we specifically looked at whether the rotational properties of galaxies also depend on environment. And here we go back to that early picture that I did in my PhD, where you have these extremely massive galaxies forming, but that process is expected to be caused by massive mergers. So two really massive galaxies colliding with each other, where you transform a disk-like galaxy into a big elliptical. And with the transformation, you remove most of its angular momentum, meaning that instead of rotation, these galaxies become dominated by what we call chaotic or random orbits, or dispersion dominated. And so this is a different type of dynamical support, And we find that this property exists mostly in very massive galaxies, but there was also a hint that we saw this fraction of these slow rotating galaxies increasing towards the centers of very massive clusters. The thing is, it was a little bit of a chicken and an egg question because massive galaxies tend to live towards the centers of big clusters as well. So is it mass or is it environment that really drives the formation of these massive galaxies? And so in the latest release, this is data release three, which is also our final data release. With that came a few papers. And one paper that I led showed that whilst mass really is the most dominant driver for the formation of these slow rotating galaxies, environment still has a second order effect, albeit a lot smaller. So this means that yes, environment matters, but not as much as we initially thought it would. And Stami has now finished observations. And so we've had final data release in 2021, but we've now moved on to a new survey called the Hector survey, where Hector has double the amount of these bundles that we can place on the sky, over a larger field of view as well. And so with that, we really hope to push beyond those 3,000 galaxies up to 15,000 galaxies. And combined with other surveys in the world, and so there is a similar survey like SAMI called MANGA, which was the American equivalent that had already made it up to 10,000, but with an instrument that lacked in resolution in order to measure the precise orbits of all of these galaxies. And so Hector is really this new amazing instrument that will allow us to do extremely accurate dynamical measurements of galaxies but now for 15,000 galaxies instead of 3,000. So really exciting times.
0: Wow, to be able to understand through this research what's happened in such large detail so far away and so far away in time as well. That's awesome. So that's a semi-surveyor. Look, I love all of those acronyms, and I won't ask you to actually say what the acronyms stand for, but I do know that you're the PI for geckos, and you're using the VLT for that. Could you tell us about geckos? Yes, sir.
1: Yeah, so geckos is the latest and greatest in terms of looking not at a large sample of galaxies, but at a really small but very well-designed set of galaxies. What I mean by this is what we found as an outcome of SAMI is that in order to understand the evolutionary history of individual galaxies, the best way to look at galaxies is edge-on. And this might be a little bit surprising because if you imagine, you know, a beautiful spiral galaxy on the sky... Clearly, when you observe it face on, meaning when you look at all of the spiral arms and the structures from above, that looks most impressive. And so, other surveys have looked at galaxies in that way. And one is a FANG survey that used this very large telescope uh, with Muse to understand what galaxies look like at the smallest scales from face on. But what they're looking at is the stars that are the brightest. And this is the youngest stars typically. But if you want to understand the full evolutionary history of a galaxy, you kind of want to look at the old stars as well. And as it turns out, the old stars tend to reside in the thicker regions of a galaxy. So meaning if I observe a galaxy from the edge on, and if you imagine just a plate that you put edge on, so basically you see a thin strip, but then the older stars live off the plane of that little plate. And so, edge-on galaxies give you a completely unique view of both the young stars and the old stars. And so, what we proposed for was a survey that looked at high detail at 35 galaxies, but targeted such that we're looking at galaxies that are very similar to our own Milky Way. So, galaxies with a similar mass where we expect that if the Milky Way had a slightly different formation history, it could turn out to be like one of these galaxies. And so what we're asking is, how did the Milky Way's formation history form all of the structures that we see? How important are mergers, so external processes that collide with the Milky Way's disk versus internal processes, such as its internal bar that redistributes a lot of the material, little spiral arms that can move gas around. All of these are really important questions that you can study in the Milky Way, but the downside is that the Milky Way is only one galaxy. Yeah. So it's it's asking, how do all of these different processes impact galaxy evolution, but you're only allowed to study it with a sample of one? And so what Geckos does and just because astronomers love acronyms, Gecko stands for generalizing edge-on-galaxies and their chemical bimodalities, kinematics, and outflows out to solar environments. So it's not a contrived acronym at all. <laughs> um, but what Gecko does is, is say, if we use other galaxies, can we understand how our own Milky Way formed? And so it's looking at these galaxies in extremely high detail with an instrument like the VLT-MUSE, That will allow us to answer that question.
0: Sensational. Thanks, yes, sir. So let's just go back to your career for a minute. Last year, you were in an ARC DECRA position at the University of Sydney, and you're still there, but now you're on an Astro 3D research fellowship. Now, what's your role at the University of Sydney? And without spilling the beans yet, on this 2021 Milky Way paper I want to talk about, which I hope we'll talk about soon. What sort of research projects are you working on now?
1: I guess most of my time is spent on the gecko surveys now, primarily because as a principal investigator, it's a big role in managing a team of by now 40 international astronomers, so a lot of my time and effort goes into making sure that survey becomes a big success. Yeah, but of course I have other projects that I'm working on as well. And so at the University of Sydney, I started out as a postdoc working on the Sami Galaxy Survey, then transitioning into both Sami and the Hector Galaxy Survey. So Hector is of course still very much on my mind and working a lot on this as well, as well as doing projects with students, working on the data that we have on the Sami galaxy survey, on other imaging surveys, where we can use deep structures around these massive flow rotators to understand how they formed. So this is a project from one of my PhD students, uh, Tom Rutherford, as well as trying to understand how unique the Milky Way is if you compare it to a large sample of galaxies, such as within the, the Sami galaxy survey. So there's lots of different projects, but I guess the main theme is how do galaxies like the Milky Way form, evolve, and how do they die? And so that is really, I guess, the, the thread that ties everything together and bringing in little pieces of the puzzles in trying to answer that. Besides that, I'm doing, of course, a little bit of teaching as well. So, I teach honors course on galaxy observations and galaxy formations, which I really love and is another way to share the knowledge with the new generation of amazing people that will do far better and more amazing work than I could ever dream of.
0: <laughs> now, that could be quite a challenge. Yes, sir. Okay. Um... Look, while we're talking about your current role at the University of Sydney, are you involved in outreach projects per se? And I laughed when I was reading your thesis and you mentioned some outreach that you did. I don't know, maybe it was back in the Netherlands. And you'd given some presentations to the public and then you answered the questions of, quote, curious and enthusiastic youth, stubborn old men and numerous frackpots, unquote. Who doesn't love outreach? Yes, sir. Are you involved in outreach at Sydney?
1: Yeah, that's that's definitely a good quote to dug up. Um, I love, I mean, yeah, we. I think all astronomers love outreach and love talking about the passion that most of us have for the universe. But I guess with astronomy, it does bring out the largest mix of people who have an opinion on how the universe works. And this is why I always say, stubborn old man, there's always this joke where as soon as engineers are retired, they will try to venture into a new career. And often it is astronomy where they try to tell us what we've been doing wrong for the last 100 years when it comes to dynamics. (laughs) All jokes aside, I mean, my favorite part of outreach is young people, because they have such a curiosity, but also such an amazing brain to suck in all of that knowledge that you give them. And they come up with the most amazing ways to rephrase and reiterate what you said in a way you couldn't have even imagined. And so it's that that imagination, that, that spark of, let's think about things in a very different ways that make it so rewarding. And that's why I love going to schools and give talks. I often try to make it as interactive as possible because trying to keep a class of 30 kids sit still on a chair is is a harder job than anyone is doing at the moment. But the reason why I love doing it is because it also makes you realize why we're doing fundamental research. Yep. Because I always say that with research where the practical industry applications are small, outreach is our way of of giving back and particularly in Australia where you know driving outside of any city will give you probably the best view of the night sky anywhere in the world I think it's such an important job to inspire these kids to actually do that and so with light pollution becoming a bigger and bigger problem in the world where some predictions are that you know more than 80 or 90% of the population won't be able to see stars or the Milky Way within a short drive. Um, I think it's important to keep iterating and keep showing people that this does exist and that there is something outside of our own Earth. Besides the youth, of course, I mean, there's a lot of people who are interested in astronomy, sort of astronomical clubs and societies. So I often try to go out and give talks at these. And that's a great way of sharing the latest research that you do and giving people an update and trying to change some of the views that people have on how galaxies evolve, what they've been taught in school, making them excited about things like dark matter and dark energy, things that we as astronomers don't understand, but are really exciting and will be discovered hopefully within our lifetime. So outreach is, is this amazing thing. I try to do as much as I can, but I'm not involved in any big outreach projects that I leave up to others at the university and within the Center of Excellence Astro Pre-D.
0: Fantastic. And this recording you're doing right now is some great research, and I'm very grateful for you, your generosity in sharing your time with us. Yes, sir.
1: Okay. Not a problem.
0: Let's get now to something that I've been wondering about ever since I started looking at your work. Let's look now at this skybreaking research from 2021 that you led with Dr Nicholas Scott about galactic evolution that you hinted at a bit earlier it has huge implications for our view of our own milky way galaxy and how it's evolved am i right in thinking that some astronomy textbooks will have to be rewritten and What was the prevailing view of our home galaxy's evolution? And what do we now think about our Milky Way after your team's 2021 paper in the Astrophysical Journal?
1: Please tell us. Yes, sir. Um, So it's interesting saying that astronomy textbooks might have to be rewritten. I don't know if that will actually happen or if more research is required, but it does bring up the main reason why we did the research. Uh, together with Nick, we asked the question, how unique is our own Milky Way? Yep. And now that question, of course, has been asked many times before, but the reason why we revisited this problem was because of a recent discovery that was done within our own Milky Way. And so we have to go in a little bit more detail on how Milky Way studies are being done. So in the Milky Way, we look at individual stars. So we try to measure both their position, how fast they rotate, so their velocities, but also their chemical properties. Chemical properties meaning what kind of metals exist within these stars, but also how old they are. And in doing so, and this is the revolution that was caused by a new ESA satellite called Gaia. And so Gaia did these measurements for around one and a half to two billion stars at the moment. And what they found, which confirmed previous research, is that the Milky Way has a really unique structure that we call the thick disk. So the thin disk is the part that we see in the night sky. So this is the really bright part where all of the young stars live. But as I alluded to earlier, if you look at galaxies edge on, the thicker component is actually made out of stars that are a lot older. Now, what made the Milky Way unique as compared to other galaxies is that the signature that we found within this thick disk showed that there were two possible scenarios for how this thick disk was created. So the stars in there were metal poor, meaning they were formed a long time ago when the gas that they were formed of was not so enriched, whereas in the thin disk stars are really enriched. So meaning they were produced out of gas that had been formed out of many supernova explosions before. So you have a metal poor and a metal rich component. But there's another signature that you can look at in these stars, which is after elements which are formed in supernova type two, which are a classic, you have an object that is too massive that collapses and explodes versus other supernova, which we call type 1A, which are white dwarves that reach this critical mass. Now, both leave very different chemical signatures in the gas and from that gas that forms new stars. So by looking at the chemistry, in particular, at an element called magnesium that you compare with iron, what it shows is that the thick disk has a very different chemical signature as compared to the thin disk. And so this led people to come up with a formation scenario where they said the only way to create this thick and thin disk with these chemical signatures is by having a very particular merger early on in the Milky Way's lifetime. And so this merger must have happened about 10 billion years ago, and that caused that older component to probably puff up and then have a thinner component form inside of it. But so when people did this investigation in big computer simulations, they found that only a very small fraction of galaxies that looked like the Milky Way in these simulations had that specific signature. So that that thick and thin disk with these typical chemistries, which meant that the Milky Way was probably formed in a really unique event. But then there was another team, and that was led by people both here at the University of Sydney, but also at Oxford, who said, well, actually, if you do your stellar evolution modeling correctly, and you let stars move from the inner part of the disk to the outer part of the disk, uh, move them radially, you can actually explain this signature as well. So based on this discovery, we had two conflicting scenarios. One said the Milky Way is really unique, and you can only form this in a special event with this type of merger, And the other model said, actually, this is a really generic feature of galaxies. And if you look at other galaxies, you should form this thick and thin disk with different chemical signatures quite easily. And so this is where Nick and I came in. So we used the VLT again with Muse. So this was a pilot study for the gecko survey. And what we did is we looked at these chemical signatures in one particular edge-on galaxy. So this galaxy was called UGC 10.738. It had the same mass as our own Milky Way. It looked like the Milky Way from edge on. It even had a typical signature of a bar structure if you look edge on. So everything about it said, this is the Milky Way. And the theory then is, if we were to investigate this thick region and thin region in the disk, if we were to find this different chemical signature, that would probably exclude that special scenario. And so when we did this measurement, immediately we saw the same thing as occurred when in our own Milky Way. And so this is why we said, no, the Milky Way is probably not as unique as we thought it would be. But this is a really good thing, because it means that any lessons that we learn from our own Milky Way can be applied to every other disk galaxy with the same mass. So this means the Milky Way can be used as a template for understanding galaxy evolution. And this is why I think this result was so exciting. Now, there's a lot of details where people, of course, are being ultra critical on saying, well, actually, it doesn't quite explain it all. um, But I think this is the reason why I wouldn't really write any current textbooks. But I think it's a really important discovery that now led to geckos where we can do this study even better and in more detail.
0: Fantastic. And it's a great example of how the critical thinking of scientists and the way they look at the same scenario in so many different ways. It's a great way of probing and understanding all about our universe. It's awe-inspiring. Right now, it might be good to ask. I keep on hoping I don't have to ask this question, but It seems like we're in wave number five at the moment. How is the current worldwide COVID-19 crisis, how has it impacted on your work? The WHO has stated it's not a worldwide crisis anymore, and we always hope it's over. But talking to a nurse who works in a local hospital here, they are overwhelmed again. They're getting new cases come in daily, and some of the cases are infecting some of their non-COVID patients. So it's still going on. I hope you and your family have navigated through it successfully. Yes. And what are your personal and professional reflections on
1: COVID-19? Yeah, it was definitely an interesting period thinking back about it and still how it's impacting our current research, but also the way we live. Yep. And so the first thing, which was maybe a positive, surprising thing for myself, is I learned that I can actually hide in a cave for long periods of time quite well. I'm probably one of the lucky few that doesn't need a live circle um, to go out and meet people. I guess it comes with a job of where well, a lot of people are somewhat introvert and like their own little space, at the same time, the, the one thing that was really difficult that I learned I relied on is the little conversations you have with colleagues in the hallway over coffee when you just walk by their offers and you want to ask something. This was really difficult to mimic with the, in the online virtual only because once you schedule a Zoom meeting, it becomes this official thing where you're talking about business and science and all these things, and the little chit-chats where you sometimes get really good ideas um, are just missing altogether. And we're noticing this really strongly with the generation of students that went through COVID, that never learned the benefits from being in an office and asking your office mate or people down the hall for a little, little bit of help that will just take one minute, but the process of just being okay and comfortable, just interrupting people and and asking for help is not something they've learned and seen the benefit of. So that was definitely something that we had to pick up and almost teach them the benefits of now that COVID is sort of more on the decline. The other interesting thing I learned is that COVID was the perfect time for the scientific community to really embrace virtual conferences where we'd come up with a really good way to give talks remotely, to have discussions remotely. And as soon as COVID was over and people started having in-person conferences again, almost everyone that I met said, oh, it's so much better to meet in person where it's easier to chat to each other over coffee, it's easier to build connections during lunch, during dinner, and even in the pub at night. And this is perhaps a little bit of a disappointing outcome where I imagined that that two or three year time period we would have used to really solidify the way we do virtual meetings. And whilst a lot of people have put a lot of effort into this, I do feel we're going back to the classic let's fly all around the world to meet for a week. And I myself am definitely guilty of this because I've noticed the difference in experience from a virtual conference versus an in-person. So there's definitely good things that came out of it where there's always a virtual option now. So not everyone has to go to a conference, but at the same time, it's a little sad that the best experience is still by meeting people and talking to them face-to-face.
0: Indeed. Okay. Let's bring our listeners up to date with some of the finer points of your current work. So could you talk us through some details of a particular problem that you're working on now that is driving you crazy or perhaps astonishingly exciting? The excitement in your voice is inspiration in itself, or perhaps the problem you're working on is both crazy and exciting. What's going on? Yes, sir.
1: Yeah, so, of course, I mean, I think if there aren't any things that are driving you crazy as a scientist, you're doing something wrong. I mean, the point is that we're trying to challenge each other's to reach that extra point. And so, currently, the thing that's that's driving me a little bit mad is in how we measure these chemical signatures in, in stars and in galaxies. Yep. And the reason why I said that people are a little bit sceptical is because people refer to these two different disks as a bimodality, meaning when you plot all of your data, you see two clear peaks in this magnesium versus iron. And this is really going to a lot of details, but the way we measure magnesium in galaxies at the moment is either saying, yes, there's a lot of it, versus no, there's very little of it meaning I only have two options in my current modeling that tell me whether it exists or not, or whether there's a large amount of it versus not a large amount. Now, if I tell you to measure the height of people, and I tell you, you can only say if they're tall and they're small, if I don't ask you, are these two populations completely different? You would say, well, with only two measurements, I can't really predict that much. So what we're working on at the moment is working with people that build these, what we call stellar population synthesis models, basically trying to explain how a star evolves throughout its lifetime, if it has a different mass, if it has a different um, amount of metals in it, how does that evolve and how does that change over its lifetime? And these models are absolutely crucial for understanding how galaxies evolve. But as I said, they only give us, yes, there's a lot of magnesium versus there's very little. And this is one of the things that is driving me mad because I'm trying to tell people these two disks are distinct. They're really separate, but I'm basing it on just a resolution or two different types of measurement. And this needs to change for geckos. It's a lot of work. A lot of extremely smart people are working on it. My frustration is that this might not arrive in time for us to make our first and write our first papers. So it's something that is clearly needed, but might only arrive in one or two years' time when the survey is, is full and well ongoing and we're already writing papers. So that's sort of a little bit of a frustration and something that annoys me. But I'm also aware that, you know, it requires a lot of work. So, yeah, that's that's spilling the beans on, you know, the ins and outs of what we do at the moment.
0: <laughs> and, yeah, watch this space. Okay, beautiful science. Now, now, besides your career in astronomy, your ambition lies in the promotion and development of sustainable energy and in solving difficult social problems I don't know whether to ask you to talk about this in the context of AI or not, but could you give us a rundown of the work you do here and the work that still has to be done in terms of sustainable energy and solving our pervasive social problems?
1: So I think as an astronomer, we have a really important duty to explain to people that there is no Earth B. There is no planet B that is the equivalent of the Earth that we can move to, that we can live on. Yep. Meaning we have to be extremely precious with what we have here on Earth because there is no current alternative. And there will very likely not be one within the lifetime, or at least within the several generations that are going to live on Earth. And so... The work I've been doing is probably mostly from an outreach perspective. We're trying to emphasize how important it is that we take care of the Earth. And sustainable energy is probably one of the most important part of this. Now, as a physicist, I strongly believe that nuclear power is a very good way forward. It's clean energy. Yes, there are a lot of risks associated with it. But in particular, nuclear fusion, so the process where you take hydrogen and you fuse it into helium, is the cleanest energy source possible. Now, I remember that in my undergraduate, we've already had the talks about a nuclear fusion plant being built, and this would be operational in 2010, and it would change the way that we see energy, it would change the way that we... You know, have an impact on the climate. Unfortunately, all this work turns out to be more difficult than expected. But in my opinion, not enough money and investment is going in that direction, which could really be a life changer. Yep. Now, um, that is that is the way I sort of hope to convey the message to the world, saying this is what we need to do because it is important, and there is no planet B. But as an astronomer, I'm also a little bit conflicted because the work that I do of building telescopes in remote places, flying all across the world to do these observations, talking to other astronomers at conferences, running really big computer simulations on a supercomputer cluster that has a massive impact on the environment. That is a little bit contradicting to the message I said, which is is why I think I'm a little bit conflicted. At the same time, the work that we do is really important to spread this message But at the same time we're having a rather big impact on the environment so thinking of observatories going green using only solar power which is around plenty at observatories thinking about running more sustainable computer simulations which actually is might be the largest impact we have on the environment in the same way that um ai has a massive impact On the amount of energy that we use to make these predictions. And so AI, whilst it it will do amazing things, um, it's also scary, not just from the what-if perspective, but definitely from the how much energy it's using. And so as an astronomer, that worries me, but I also don't know any good alternatives or solutions other than going to nuclear energy, which in my opinion is sustainable at least it's better than what we're doing at the moment.
0: Very true. I think I saw a couple of months ago that there have been some strong developments with fusion. I think it they've sustained a fusion reaction for more than a few seconds now. So we are getting there, I hope.
1: I agree. I think we are getting there. But whether we're getting there fast enough is the thing that worries me. And yeah. so I really hope that we can convince um, everyone that this needs more attention and this really is the energy of the future. Yes, undoubtedly. Okay, thanks, yes, sir. Is there anything else we
0: should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on, apart from all of these big questions and these huge galaxies? What's on your radar?
1: So I realised one of the earlier questions you asked me, am I using the James Webb Space Telescope? which is unfortunately no, because I have too many other projects going on. But this is the space that I would be watching and I'm watching myself. So the story that we started with about these extremely massive red and dead galaxies in the early universe, where during my PhD, we found these galaxies maybe two to three billion years after the Big Bang. There's now evidence from the James Webb Space Telescope that these galaxies might exist 600 million years, so within 1 billion years after the Big Bang. Now, a lot of these measurements need to be confirmed. It is very hot science at the moment, but this is where I think the revolution will be in the next 10 years in the early universe. So understanding how galaxies form, how quickly that process happened is where the James Webb Space Telescope will make the biggest discoveries. So it's extremely exciting to be looking for the sidelines to all of that research coming. And hopefully within the next year, I managed to get some JWST time myself. We'll, we'll probably look more at the gecko's galaxies than the early universe.
0: Excellent. Okay, look, we're running out of time now, Yessa. We'll have to sign off. Thank you so much, Dr. Yessa Van der Sand, on behalf of all of our listeners, and especially from me. It's been really fabulous speaking with you, and I'm going to take so much enjoyment out of watching your career. It's so multifaceted. It's got so many levels in it. Thank you especially for your time. I really do understand in your situation how difficult it must be to juggle all of those responsibilities within your role. Now, For listeners who would like to read a great galaxy paper by Yes in nature, go to tinyearl.com forward slash JesseVDS. That's spelled J-E-S-S-E-V-D-S. It's a great paper. You'll love it. Thank you so much and good luck with all your projects and with all your next adventures. Well, thank you. We'll be watching over your shoulder, yes, sir? Awesome.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Brendan, for giving me the opportunity as well to share my research. It's it's an absolute pleasure to do so.
0: Good on you. Cheers, mate. Bye. Bye. Right. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, but we always recommend that you check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astro Blogger website to find out what's up in the night sky, and in two weeks' time, at the start of the month, we'll be bringing you a July Sky Guide.
1: Rengawati.